My name is Jerry, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Carmel Campus, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you that are here today, those of you that traveled from Noblesville, those of you online. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. And here's the thing that you need to know, whether this is your first time or you're one of those weird people that join us on a regular basis, we believe something really special happens when we gather together as a church family to celebrate God's goodness that has been revealed to us through his son, Jesus. And so thanks to all of you that are joining us online or here today as we celebrate his goodness together. And today we're going to continue in our series that we've called The Valley. And and we've said that this series is based on the most famous, if not the most frequently quoted passage in all of scripture, Psalm 23. And what we've learned about Psalm 23 over the last several weeks is that it was written by a man named David. And just in case you're not familiar with David, he was the greatest king over Israel in the Old Testament. He was a great, great man, great, great king But before he ever became a king, he got his start as a humble shepherd overseeing a flock of sheep in the Judean wilderness. And as it turns out, he wrote wrote many psalms. And in this psalm in particular, he writes it, we learn, from the perspective of a shepherd. But he also goes on to help us understand his relationship with God and God's relationship towards us as our shepherd. And he begins in verse 23:1, saying this, "'The Lord is my shepherd.'" I lack nothing. We talked about that several weeks ago, and he's making a really bold faith statement here. What he is saying is, I trust God as my shepherd, and because of that, I'm not afraid of anything. I don't lack anything. There's nothing really that I need. He takes care of me. And and I don't know about you, that phrase just kind of messed with me a little bit over the last couple of weeks. I've got lots of needs, and and I'm sure that you do too, right? We have physical needs and financial needs, relational needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, I'll be honest with you, I'm an IU fan, and I need my team to win a few more games so they can stumble into the NCAA tournament, and I wrote that in there before they beat Michigan State last night, okay? I I just had it in there. We need to win, right? And we all have needs. We have all these things that are important to us, but here's the thing. If David's theology is accurate, he's saying that all of our most important needs can be met and experienced when we trust in the Lord God as our shepherd, And it's a really bold statement, but if you continue to read through Psalm 23, every verse that follows, he backs it up by saying, listen to what my shepherd has done for me. He's given me comfort and rest when I'm tired and weary. He's helped me find my way back to safety. He restores me when I wander away and get lost. And last week we learned that David's confidence in God was so strong that he said somehow he was able to not fear the threat of evil or death. He said this, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you, God, you're my shepherd and you're with me. Now, can you even imagine what it would be like to have that kind of confidence in or that kind of closeness with God? And some of us probably think, yeah, it'd be nice. Actually, it sounds a little obnoxious, right? And we think that we, we, we can fall into this pattern of thinking that Confidence in God like that is reserved for people that have their lives together and are in charge of all the details. Just everything seems to go their way. And you know the people I'm talking about, right? They're the cool kids on campus. Everyone loves them and wants to be like them. Everything seems to go their way all the time. Their marriage reads like a fairy tale that's sure to end happily ever after. And their Instagram feed is just gushing with all the good things they get to do and all the good food they get to eat. And Their kids are perfect with perfect manners and perfect hair and straight teeth. And the rest of us think, oh, how's that even possible, right? 
Their careers are exciting and everyone in the office loves them. And it looks like they just get to print their own money because they go and do whatever they want. And the rest of us are just watching like, man, that'd be nice. Can you imagine what that'd be like? I mean, just one day a week, one day a month, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, you would have an unshakable faith in God that could overcome the fear of evil or laugh in the face of death. But then there's the rest of us. And I'm gonna put myself in this category. When it comes to excitement in my life, I would tell you that the excitement factor seems very underwhelming. And all the things that should be easy or simple feel very overwhelming on a regular basis. And for some of us, that looks like the fact that we're just trying to fit in or at least not stand out in social settings. We, we don't want people to notice us, but we don't want to feel forgotten. Or maybe you're, you're lonely because everybody else has somebody else to be with or hang around with, and you just feel lonely. Or life at home for you is the opposite of a fairy tale. It's actually a nightmare. There's constant tension with your spouse and your kids are always bickering with, with you and with one another. And then there's work. Gross, yuck. Like, why are you even talking about work right now, Jerry? I don't wanna go there tomorrow, even though they pay me to be there. You would rather be anywhere else other than this place where you gotta go and do this work. Or maybe for some of us, you're just scraping to get by. And you're not even sure how you're gonna survive this week, much less pay the next bill that's coming in because there's a stack of bills that are already overdue. And I think if we were honest with ourselves and with one another, we would admit we've all been there before. Maybe some of us are there today. And when you get there, the only real confidence you have in God when you get to that spot is the confidence that he's mad at you, he's frustrated with you, or he has forgotten about you completely. And that's a really scary and depressing place to be. And again, I think we would all admit that we're there. Some of us might find ourselves there today, but I actually have some really good news for you David was there on a regular basis. In fact, today in verse five of Psalm 23, we're gonna see a story that happens in David's life where God showed up at just the right time to provide for him. So we know David experienced this. But before we get there, I just wanna take a moment and pray. And I wanna ask the God of the universe to help us as we go into his word to see and to hear what he wants us to see and hear this morning. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Will you help us this morning, not just to understand this concept of you being our shepherd, but would you help us to know your son Jesus personally and intimately as our good shepherd? Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes? Will you open our ears? Would you open our hearts and our minds as we walk through your word this morning? Would you help us to know you personally, to respond to you in obedience and confidence as we walk through the peaks and the valleys of life? We ask all of this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. So last week, David acknowledged that there are some tough times in life. He referred to them as the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death. And so even though David had this seemingly unshakable faith in God, he said, hey, look, look, I know I get it. Life doesn't always go the way that you want. Life can be very hard and difficult. But then he goes on in verse five to say this, the very next verse, you prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Now, there's a lot happening in that verse. And I don't know about you, but when I read it, I'm curious about so many different things. But what I've learned as I've studied this passage is there's really six words that we need to pay very close attention to. And I will say this, if you're like me, it took somebody pointing these words out to me so they caught my attention. Now, look at it closely. What six words stand out to you? I'm going to give you a hint. It's not the words 
Prepare, table, enemies, anoint, head, cup, or overflows. Those seem like the obvious ones. I'll give you one more hint. It's all the words that are repeated, the only words that are repeated in this verse. Think of it like this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And it's so easy when we read that verse to look at all the stuff and the swag that David says he's gonna get from God, but he seems to be making a bigger point that the only thing that makes any of the stuff worth it is the one who's doing all the giving. And, and you've probably figured this out already, but the you that David is referring to here is none other than the God of the universe, the God that spoke creation into existence. And it would be really easy to just run past that, but I want you to pay attention to something. Time and time again, in the first five verses of this psalm, David mentions God's involvement in the intimate details of his life 11 times in five verses. I think David wants us to pay attention to who the giver is so that we can appropriately appreciate anything that he gives us. And with that said, the Lord gives some really good and very, very timely gifts. Look back to what David says in Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So right here, David is saying, look, I've got enemies. There's people that don't like me. Things don't always go my way, but God, you're so good to me. Now, back in verse one, remember, he says, Lord, you're my shepherd. In verse four, he says, as my shepherd, you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. And I don't know about you, but the valley of the shadow of death just sounds like a place that you don't want to go. It sounds like the rough part of town, right? You don't want to hang out there long. You don't want to even drive through. But here, David says, you prepare a table before me. We went out to dinner afterwards. You took me to St. Elmo's and we had a steak dinner to celebrate the fact that we both survived. God, you're so good to me. But here's what's interesting. Something interesting that a friend pointed out to me this week from the perspective of a shepherd. Think of it, think of it like this. It's not uncommon for shepherds to lead their flocks to high mountain areas or plateaus that are known as tablelands. And these are highly sought after places so for shepherds to take their sheep so they can graze in safety. But before a shepherd can take their flock there, you know what they got to do? They got to go to the tablelands and they have to prepare them. They have to get rid of all the poisonous plants and they have to kill off any snakes that might harm their sheep. And so think back to what David is saying here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And as a former shepherd, that makes sense to him. I get that, God. I have to go and prepare a place for my flock. You do that for me. But then here's what's really, really, really fascinating to me about this particular verse. Many scholars believe that in Psalm 23, 5, David is actually referring to a very specific event that took place in his life. And the short version of the story is that his son Absalom came up with a plan to overthrow him as king, which sent David running out of Jerusalem for his life. Now, we all know this. There's no such thing as a perfect family, right? And it would be tempting to think that a guy like David had a perfect family, but here we see his family's pretty jacked up. He's got no shortage of family drama. And if you keep following this story, the issue with David and Solomon and Absalom got so intense that Absalom gathered together an army of 12,000 men with one purpose, to hunt David like an animal and to have him killed. This is his dad. So needless to say, when David found out, he ran for his life. But here's the thing. David was a really, really, really good king. 
And he had some very loyal subjects that came to him and said, if you're going to run, we're running with you. Where are we going? Now imagine you're David. You're running for your life from your very own son. And now you have this added responsibility of shepherding these people that trust you and are entrusting their life to you. Where are we going, David? I don't, I don't know. I'm figuring it out as I go. Let's go, right? And just imagine what that would be like. But here's where the story gets really, really interesting. Apparently, there was a group of people nearby that heard about David and his troubles, and they sent word to David and said, you come here and stay with us. We want to take care of you. And in 2 Samuel 17, look at what these people did for David and his people. It says, they, those people, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people. They set up a farmer's market. They're like, come on over, man. We've got everything that you need. Come and enjoy. And then look at how the, the passage ends. It says, the people said, your people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. Now, again, imagine what it would be like to be David in that moment. Because on one hand, your life is falling apart. Your son is not only testing your authority as king, he's trying to have you killed in a very public manner which is terrifying and embarrassing all at the same time. I don't think there's any way around it. But in the midst of everything falling apart, these people say, come here, we want to host a banquet in your honor. And from the description we get in 2 Samuel 17, you get the feeling that this wasn't a grab-and-go sack lunch. They said, come and take what you need and stay. Did you catch that they brought bedding and articles of pottery. How can we help? What do you need? You stay here as long as you want. We want to be sure to help you. And if I'm David, man, I'm feeling so humbled. I'm feeling very thankful. But I'm going to be honest with you. I would feel very awkward and embarrassed because you know somebody's going to say, David, it's so good to see you. We're so glad we can help you. Tell me, why again are you running? How many times do you want to tell that story? Oh, yeah, my son's trying to have me killed. Again, it's awkward. We're working through it, right? He's seeing a counselor. We'll get there one day. Now, here's the thing. In David's day and age, there were some very specific rules and expectations if you were to host someone. And as you might imagine, hosts were expected to provide food and drink, which we see here, but they would also provide you with other things like shelter and rest from the arid desert environment. But there's one aspect of hospitality in David's culture in that day that we cannot ignore. And we get this here, but this was even on a heightened, more heightened schedule, um, a more heightened level. As a host, you were responsible to provide protection for your guest at all costs. You were their protection. And we get that, right? We don't want to have anybody over to our house that doesn't feel safe. But imagine if someone were to invite you to their house today for the Super Bowl. Hey, come on over. We'd be so glad to have you. And then you get there. And when you get there, they say, oh, we're so glad you're here. We got a place just for you to sit. Come follow me. And they walk all the way around the house. They take you to the back porch and there's metal folding chairs set up outside on the porch. And they say, here you go. Now you can watch through the window here. You'll see into our living room. And we'll try to turn it up loud enough so you can hear what's going on. Okay. And we don't have any snacks for you. Sorry. You're just going to have to, but the game's not that long. So don't, don't worry about it. Right. And we couldn't rent a porta pot. And so if nature calls, we dug a hole, just go around the side. But you know what? It's cold. It's a little wet out here. I'm going inside. Enjoy the game. Go, go Rams, right? And they're out. Now, I don't know about you. If I get invited to that person's house for Super Bowl, guess what? 
They're not my friend anymore. They're dead to me, and I'm never having them over. That is not how you treat somebody, right? We know that. We know that hosts are responsible for taking care of their guests. But it's also worth noting that in David's culture, now think about this. A person's fame and affluence wasn't expressed by all the stuff they had. A person's fame and affluence was expressed in how they showed hospitality to you as their guest. And preparing a table for someone was a sign of great honor towards that person. So much so that it was common for the host to provide way more food than any one person or any group of people could eat. The goal was to have lots and lots and lots of leftovers. So take a moment to think back what David says here. You prepare a table before me, Lord, in the presence of my enemies. When things are falling apart, you're good to me. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Now in David's culture, oil had a variety of different purposes. You could cook with it, you could eat it, you could use it for medicine, but it was also used as a lotion. And you know this, the climate in the Middle East is very hot and dry, and so a generous host would offer their guest oil so they could rub it on their face and on their forehead to rejuvenate their skin and their appearance. If you've ever had a sunburn, you've probably done something like that before, haven't you? You rub aloe all over your skin. Why? It refreshes you and it heals the burn. These people did the same thing. In fact, they would often put a little bit of fragrance in the oil to help hide the smell of sweat and body odor. It was like old school ax spray. Come in, get yourself together, get refreshed, take the stink away, and let's hang out for a while. So if you keep reading, it says, you anoint my head with oil, and then he says, my cup overflows. Now, in Bedouin cultures like this, it was customary for a host to invite guests into their tent. And this is what a tent would look like. It was made of goat hair. It was pretty big and spacious. You can see that it was very breezy, and you, you had some shade there that you could enjoy, but a host would invite you in and they would offer you a drink of tea, coffee, or wine. And the significance of those drinks, especially when it came to wine, was a sense of happiness and joy to have you in their presence as their company. And in some cases, the host would tell his servants, hey, as soon as they take a drink from their cup, I want you to fill it up. I'd never want their cup to run out. You've probably been to a restaurant and you've seen a waiter do this before, right? He's trying to get a good tip. Every time you drink, he fills it up. Now, th that meant something to them, though. What it meant was, as long as your cup is full, you are welcome to stay. But if your cup started to get low or sit empty, that was the host's way of saying, it's time to pack your kids up and get out of here, right? It's time to move on. But on special occasions, a host would tell their servants, I want you to fill his cup up to overflowing. And when they would pour it out, liquid would spill out over the cup and it would gather into a saucer and the point of that was like the host saying, you know what, I am so thankful to have you here. I hope you never leave. You're always welcome to stay with me. It is my honor to have you here with me. Now, have you ever been to a party like that? I mean, have you ever gone somewhere where somebody just went over the top to let you know you are our honored guest? We are so glad that you are here. Our family got to experience this firsthand last year uh, we've made friends with a young man named Nino. He is a fantastic guy, and he's from Albania, and his parents live on the south side of India. He said, oh, I'd love for you to come and meet my parents, and they want to show you Albanian hospitality, and they want to cook some Albanian food for you. And we're like, oh, that sounds awesome. So we show up, and we don't know what we're walking into, but we're excited about it. We like food, so we're like, let's do this. Now, there were about 25 of us there, but the first thing that we realized when we showed up is we were not ready for the amount of food in the over-the-top hospitality 
that they had in store for us. There were 25 of us. There was food easily for 60 or 70 people, and that is not an exaggeration. They made steaks for each and every one of us. My five-year-old daughter, Kate, got a steak plopped down in front of her, and she was like, what is that? And I don't even think she ate it, but the purpose, they didn't care. Kate, we're glad that you're here. You're our honored guest. And during the meal, I had three different beverages set out before me. They're like, here, try this and try this. And what about that? And I got to be honest with you, I was overwhelmed. I didn't go back for seconds. I went back for fourths. <laughs> they, they made so much food. It was rude not to. And if you didn't go, you know what they would do? They just bring food and dump it on your plate. And so you just kept eating. And we were gorged when we left. But man, we felt so honored. I mean, we were humbled. We left. And my wife and I said, what are they going to do with all those leftovers? Like, we just felt bad for them. But that was their way of saying, oh my gosh, you are welcome in our home any time. And you get the feeling that that's what David experienced in 2 Samuel 17. And you get the feeling that's the picture that he's painting here in Psalm 23, 5. And while there was no doubt that David would be grateful to his host for being so generous to him, he was also very wise to attribute anything good that happened to his good shepherd. So he could literally say, Lord, you're my shepherd. You've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. It's almost like he's saying to his host, thank you so much, but anything that you can do, God, my shepherd, he, he can do better. He takes care of me. I don't have to worry about anything. Now let's take a moment and just admit, it's pretty cool to learn the context of a verse like that, right? I mean, it's pretty cool to learn that God is this generous host and and, and he loves us so much, but I gotta be honest with you guys. Sometimes I struggle to make these things personal. And so I just wanna ask this question, what does that have to do with our everyday lives? Like I'm not David, I don't live in the Middle East, I've never rubbed oil like that on my face. What, what am I gonna do with this later today or tomorrow? And, and I can't speak for all of us, but I'm gonna guess at some point in time, we struggle to understand what David is saying about God or just how great God is. And here's the thing, I think Jesus knew that too. That's why Jesus would always tell these stories to people to help them understand, oh gosh, God is so much better than you could ever imagine. And one of those stories comes from Luke chapter 15. There's a story of a son who rebelled against his father in some pretty hurtful ways. And the story is called The Prodigal Son. And you've probably heard it or heard of it before. You've probably read it. But I don't know about you. I've never known the meaning of that word prodigal. I had to look it up this week. And this is what it means. Prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly to be wastefully extravagant. And if you know the story, you know that's what happens, right? This man's younger son comes up to him and says, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. Now, the funny thing about an inheritance, when do you inherit it? When someone dies. And so that boy is saying to his dad, you're dead to me. I want you to give me my money and I want to go off and do my thing. And the dad, for good or bad, gives the son what he asks for. And the son does what you would expect an immature young man like that to do. He goes and makes all kinds of friends and has all kinds of fun with his money. But eventually it all runs out. He had nothing at all to show for it. And as a result, he found himself in a very tough spot. And Jesus said when he realized he was in a tough spot, this is how he knew the only food that was available for him to eat was pig food. And he thought, man, that looks pretty good. But Jesus said he came to his senses and he realized, man, you know what? My dad, oh, my dad is such a good dad. But I've blown it as a son. There's no way he would ever have me back as a son. Thankfully, he's a small business owner. 
maybe he would take me back as a servant. And at least that way, I would have a roof over my head and I'd have some food to eat. And so that young man, when he came to his senses, he began the, he began the long walk of shame back home to see his father. And then look at how Jesus ends of this story. In Luke 15, verse 20, he says this, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. Now put yourself in the son's shoes. The one person that you're most afraid of in the whole world, the one person that you have to say I'm sorry to is charging at you. You've already practiced in your head what you want to say. And and dads, can we just have a moment? I don't know about you, but what I would be tempted to do is I've got the look ready and I'm gonna say something along the lines of, I told you so. That's just, unfortunately, that's just what I do. That's what we do as dads. But that's not what this dad did. Look at what Jesus says. The dad just throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And the son was not ready for that response. The son just blurts out, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But you gotta pay attention to what happens next. And when you think about what happens next and and, in context of Psalm 23, 5, it really kind of brings it to life. Listen to this. The father didn't even respond to his son. He looks to his servants and he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Isn't it interesting what the dad does? He says, I want, we got to refresh this boy's appearance. He looks rough. Give him my robe. Give him my ring. Like, we are going to celebrate this today. And while you're at it, fire up the grill. We're going to have steaks tonight because he was dead and now he's alive. Let's have a party in his honor. And even though that son had given his father every reason under the sun to write him off, he goes over the top. He's extravagant with his love towards his son. I say, oh gosh, please, I'm so glad you're home. Just know how much I love you. Now, some people refer to this story not as the prodigal son, but as the prodigal father. Because when it comes down to it, the father spends his resources in a way that is wastefully extravagant in order to express his love for his son. And again, I want you to imagine the story from the perspective of the son. If you go on and read what happens, he didn't anticipate this, right? But if you go on and read what happens, his older brother refuses to go to his party. And he tells, the older brother tells his dad, how dare you? I've stayed here. I've been faithful to you. Why are you celebrating the fact that he's home? So the son had already had one enemy. And I just have to imagine that those servants thought, you snot-nosed little punk. Your dad is so good to you. You have everything you want and you went and you wasted it and you have the nerve to show up here today and now we're throwing a party in your, I gotta serve you? The man from the son's perspective, he could say, oh gosh, dad, you, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I mean, what an extravagant show of love for his son. And just in case you're wondering, okay, but what what significance does that story have? Well, let me tell you, that is my story and that is your story. Every single one of us is that son or that daughter. We've wandered from God. We've ran from God. We've demanded to do things our way. We hit a rough patch. We don't know why we're there. God, you've forgotten about me. And Jesus says, oh gosh, I just want you to know something. 
God isn't just a good shepherd. He is a loving and a generous heavenly father and he wants you to come home to him. What are you waiting for? He's not asking you to bring anything. He just says, come and let me be wastefully extravagant towards you. Jesus says, God doesn't keep us at a distance when we know we deserve to be held at arm's length. And he invites us into his tent and he prepares a table before us and he wants to refresh us and give us things we know we don't deserve and that we could never, ever, ever imagine. And here's the thing in this story that the dad says, I'll oh, give him a robe and give him a ring. But every book in, our, in, in scripture from Genesis to Revelation says something different. Our God doesn't give us a robe or a ring. He gives us his son. And he says, any one of you that would put your trust in my son, he's gonna die to pay for you. Any one of you that would put your trust in him, well, you'll get to experience my extravagant love. And he invites us in. And Jesus says, any one of you that would put your trust in me, well, you'll be made right with your father in heaven. He is generous in his love towards you and towards me and towards all of us. And I, I don't know about you guys, can you imagine what would happen if we would just grab onto that? Like if this wasn't just a story, but it was about us and we could understand that God is our shepherd and he prepares a table before us and he wants to refresh us and he wants to provide for us and he wants to bless us. We could actually get to a point with David and we could say, Lord, you're my shepherd and you, I lack nothing you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When life is blowing up, you've got all the details figured out. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You want me to be in your presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm just gonna apologize for myself. Um, I underestimate your goodness. I mean, I just can't even fathom how good you are. I have a hard time believing these stories because I know me, but time and time again throughout scripture, we learn you are so good and generous and faithful towards us. There is no one anywhere like you. And that's why we have a hard time imagining your goodness towards us. David says, you're our good shepherd, but Jesus went one step further and said, oh, he's more than a good shepherd. He is a loving and kind and generous heavenly father. Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes no matter where we are right now, no matter what circumstance we're in, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how awful we think we are. Would you help us to come to our senses so we can come home and be invited into your presence? We could celebrate your goodness that's been expressed to us through, through Jesus. And we could see how you've laid a table out before us. And you long to bless us in ways we could never imagine. Help us not to focus on our circumstances, but to focus on you as the giver that wants to give us things more than we expect, more than we can imagine. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray.